An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Julie Bell Lindsay. Julie is the CEO of the Center for Order Quality, or CEQ as everyone calls it. If you think audit quality sounds boring, let me tell you, it's not. And that's from someone who was on the official creditors committee for WorldCom, at the time, the world's largest fraud and bankruptcy, and a great example of what happens when audits go wrong. We spent $200 million in forensic accounting and still couldn't unscramble that company's books. Today, accounting and auditing are at the heart of an incredible number of investing and public policy issues. Think about the Washington battles over what companies have to disclose about climate change. And Julie has the background to tackle those policy issues. She's a lawyer. She was counsel to former SEC Commissioner Cynthia Glassman. She spent a decade at Citigroup, culminating in a stint as the Deputy Head of Global Regulatory Affairs. She grasps how important auditing and accounting are to our financial system. And not only does she have a front row seat to watch, she gets to play. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for having me. So what's your origin story? How'd you wind up at CAQ? I can't imagine that growing up in Ohio, you sat there as a uh, young woman or even a girl and said, I can't wait to head a audit quality um, think tank. Uh, you're absolutely right. I, I did not. So it's... It's really interesting. A lot of people are surprised to learn that I actually grew up on a dairy and grape bar. Uh, I probably not being from Ohio, you would be surprised about that, but I did. I, I grew up on a dairy and grain farm in a small town in Ohio. Um, my dad had about 400 acres of land and we had dairy cows, Holstein cows, those are the black and white ones for those of you who know your cows. And uh, I, I could not wait to get off of the farm, but the older I have gotten, the more I totally appreciate where I came from. Uh, I know the value of hard work and we never had vacations growing up because we were always on the farm. And so it was a really, really interesting upbringing. I, I tell everyone, I'm the only securities lawyer that you will ever meet who knows how to milk a cow by hand. It's not necessarily a skill set that has uh, served me well throughout my career, but it is a skill that I have. I, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So I went to the Ohio State University undergrad, and I could spend a whole another hour talking about my experience at Ohio State. But when I went off to school, my dad said, there's two things I don't want you to be. One is a politician and two is a lawyer. And I was a political science major. And as you mentioned, I became a lawyer. But it was really interesting. The first year of law school, 
I absolutely hated it. You know, torts, contracts, constitutional, all the things that you have to take as a first year. But first semester of my second year, I took the Securities Act of 1933, and I never looked back. It just really clicked with me, and I really enjoyed kind of the rules-based um, approach to, to that aspect of the law. I, I started my career in the Silicon Valley in the late 90s, a really interesting time to be there. I was at a firm called Wilson Sonsini and spent my early career in the Silicon Valley. I saw that bubble grow, and I saw it burst. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to move here to D.C., was uh, another interesting time. I was able to go to the SEC during Sarbanes-Oxley and the implementation of Sarbanes-Oxley. And as you mentioned, then I ended up at um, Citigroup and came here to the CAQ. So that is that is the background from the small farm in Ohio to the CAQ. Thanks. So let's talk about CAQ for a second. It's a key institution in the Washington, D.C. universe regarding auditing issues. And like Many Washington institutions, and this seems to me to be a Washington thing, it has a sort of dual purpose that can create tension, if not conflict. I mean, let's take it away from CAQ for a second. The Fed has a dual mandate for maximum employment, stable prices. The SEC has a goal of investor protection and capital creation. Now, in CAQ's case, its public mission is, quote, enhancing investor confidence and public trust in the global capital markets. The CAQ fosters high quality performance by public company auditors. But the truth is that the audit firms fund the budget of CAQ, and sometimes it acts as the quasi-industry trade group. So how do you square those rules, which could sometimes be at odds? So as you mentioned, the CAQ is a nonpartisan. I like to refer to us and our governing board refers to us as a public policy organization. And we do serve as the voice of the U.S. public company members. Like many associations in D.C., we represent our members and our members pay membership dues. We are not lobbyists. Uh, we are not, we don't lobby. None of us are registered lobbyists. So we do have more of a public policy focus. Part of our mission is also our convening power. We can be stakeholders from all different aspects of the financial reporting ecosystem, whether it's investors or board members, audit committee members, other stakeholders, to share their views and provide their input to public company auditors. So while we are funded by the audit firms, I don't think that's different than many other organizations in D.C., and while firms obviously all share a mission of uh, high audit quality, I can assure you, John, that they are by no means monolithic in their views about different issues. So part of our job is to point out where we think we could do better, bring together the profession on different issues and their different views, at all times driven by fostering high audit quality. Perfect segue to where I wanted to go. So let's talk about that. I have a, a number of questions about the state of the profession today, um, both quality, but also relevance. So let, let's start with a big picture question about relevance. Investors increasingly look to other information that's not financial statements. 
as decision useful. We look at ESG factors. We look at customized non-standard metrics, things that people are so used to that we think they are standardized, recurring revenue or EBITDA or same source sales. We looked at forward-looking information analysis and then traditional audited financial statements, of course, are backward-looking. And yet the truth is the financial standard centers have been slow. I will say derelict, I'm not going to ask you to say it, to develop standards for any of that information. They seem to be comfortable dancing on the head of the pin. They take seven years to develop a revenue recognition standards and lease accounting standards, and yet don't address any of these broader issues like how to define EBITDA or same store sales. And they seem to be absolutely allergic to looking at ESG issues, the result of which is that's now become politicized because they left it so long um, that they left it to the regulators, elected officials. So rather than have a, a non-political standard setter do it, they wound up with Congress fighting it out. Um, by limiting the breadth of what they standardize, they keep on focusing on metrics that explain less and less of the value of the company. It's less than 20% of the value of the company is explained by the financial statements. Um, and that doesn't even get to the fact that our accounting does a really poor job of measuring intangibles like brand value or patents or skills of a workforce. And so your constituency auditors have been handicapped. It's really hard to provide assurance when there aren't standards to assure against. Now, to give the audit firms credit, where there are standards, I would argue audit quality has never been higher, the sort of 20% defect rate notwithstanding that the PCLB finds. So what do you think the accounting and auditing profession gets right today? What does it get wrong and how does it stay relevant going into the future? It's a really good question, John. It's something we've been talking a lot about here at the CHQ with the governing board. And I really appreciate it coming from you as, as an investor. Well, of course, I am going to agree with you that I believe audit quality, however that amorphous kind of topic is defined, um, it's, it's never been higher. But that by no means suggests that we can rest on our laurels. Um, there's always room to improve in the profession that I, that I see on a day-to-day basis is always looking to improve. Trust is, it's really, really, um, it's great when you have it, but it's when you lose it, it's, it's really, really detrimental. Um, so audit quality is true. I, I think as far as other things, I feel like the audit profession gets right. For many years now, they have been investing billions of dollars in technology. Technology, whether it's AI, data automation, other types of technology, even well before the pandemic, with the idea of making some aspects of the audit, the more rote aspects of the audit, more digital so that the auditors can focus primarily on those more high-risk, subjective, complex, potential for fraud areas of, of the, the audit. So I, I think those are areas where the auditors are getting it right today. And as far as where there could be room to improve, I mean, my own view is 
I, I wish the audit professional would do more to lead. Um, I think that I've heard many times, you know, auditors are in every single public company in this country, large or small, whatever the industry is. I've heard some say that they have the keys to the kingdom. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot of, a lot more the profession could be doing. And particularly, I'm not going to comment extensively, but it is without question, the standard setters have a very, very long runway. Um, so given that, what more could the profession be doing? I, I will say when it comes to ESG in particular, and some of the things you mentioned around non-GAAP and, and those types of things, the CAQ, we were very proud to support the establishment of the ISS the International Sustainability Standards Board. And I will say, as far as standard setters go, they have moved pretty quickly in the past two, two years or so to really get up and running. And I think they're still planning on having some final climate standards by the end of the second quarter this year. It is without question that investors are asking for and relying on information outside of historic financial statements and here in the U.S., internal controls. And so... We are actually seeing auditors already moving to these other areas of, of information to provide assurance. It's, it's important to note, and a lot of people don't appreciate this, the skill set of the auditors. It, it's not a word trip pony kind of skill set. In other words, the skills that they have and are required to maintain under the standards are transferable to other areas of information, like climate, like non-GAAP. So, Robust independent standards, professional skepticism, ongoing education, the fact that they do have a firm understanding of, like I said, all public companies. They're in the companies, they understand their internal controls, the risks, the strategies of the companies. They have training on fraud deterrence and detection. Um, all of these things are transferable. So you mentioned fraud. Let's explore what happens when thing goes, things go wrong. Way too often when that happens, quite honestly, the auditor says something dumb, like, you know, fraud, you know, sophisticated fraud is hard to find. Well, no, this one came out. It wasn't that sophisticated. It's an inventory fake. Or the head of Grant Thornton in the United Kingdom saying that auditors aren't responsible for finding fraud, even though auditing standards call for financial statements to be accurate, whether due to error or fraud. Um, there was a recent advisor meeting at the PCOB, the U.S. audit regulator, that also focused largely on fraud and whether or not auditors are vigilant enough. What is it about fraud that makes it such a difficult issue for auditors? I mean, the, the conspiratorial theory is, well, they get paid by the companies, so they, you know, they, they take management providing information or aren't skeptical enough for it. They'll look it up. The, the excusatory thing is they get misled and they're human. So why, I mean, fraud drives investors crazy because the auditors always say it's not our responsibility. Then the auditors get sued. They say it's not our responsibility and then they settle. So the reality is they're responsible. <laughs> well, I agree. I mean, the, as you pointed out, the standards are up. Auditors do have a role to play here, and they are to provide reasonable assurance that the financial state, our financial statements are free from material misstatement, whether due to fraud or error. 
John, honestly, I like to say that as long as you have humans involved in something, you're going to have bad. Mm-hmm. And when you have bad humans, they do bad things. Um, the fraud, by definition, is an intentional act. It is corrosion. It is hiding. Um, the standards here in the U.S. even acknowledge that, that fraud is an intentional act, and it often involves management and other employees hiding things, and that includes from the auditor. Um, it could be false evidence when the auditor is asking for evidence of things. Um, it could be false and the auditors rely on that. I'm not making excuses. I'm just pointing out the facts that as long as you have humans, there will be fraud. And I don't think we're ever going to have a capital market system where there is zero fraud. We would like to have that, but it's not going to happen. What we can do is continually work to improve deterrence and detection. And it is the, mem- it is the responsibility of all members within the financial reporting capital system, and that includes the external auditors to be vigilant in the deterrence and detection of fraud. And I mentioned all stakeholders. That, it starts with management, but you also have boards of directors and audit committees, other members of the board. You have internal audit, often overlooked in their role. And then you have the external auditors as the last line of, of defense. The CAQ, we, we lead what's called the anti-fraud collaboration. And that is a... Uh, uh, we, we collaborate with the NACD from the director perspective, IIA, Institute of Internal Audit from Internal Audit perspective, and FBI from management perspective. Really bringing all of those stakeholders together to come up with best practices, to share best practices, to share resources on the deterrence and detection of fraud. So I agree. It's when when something like this happen happens, it does taint everyone in the in the capital market system. Um, the good news is we have not seen significant frauds here in the U.S. since starting Boston has put into place with the Enron's and Wilcoms. But again, it goes back to you got to never take your foot off the gas. I, I agree. Sarbanes-Oxley has helped tremendously. And I find it stunning that the certification uh, regime it's, it starts hasn't been adopted. For instance, in the UK, I find it amazing that the regulatory authorities have no authority over CFOs unless they're accountants, right? It just seems very strange to me. That being said, the profession shoots itself in the foot fairly often. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. Recently, EY was fined $100 million for its employees cheating on of all things, the ethics portion of CPA exams. And this wasn't a few employees, this was hundreds of employees and facilitated quite honestly by some, some members of the firm. We'll just leave it like that. PwC Canada employees cheated on internal trading tests. And of course, a few years ago, KPMG used inside information to try to affect how its regular inspected the firm, which resulted in criminal investigations. And to me, what these types of situations say is that far too many people call them certified public accountants, emphasis on the public, don't understand that auditing is a profession, not just a job. It has a public purpose, has a societal role to play. In other words, it's not a game where you try to win by finding the cheat code to escape the rules. Um, in fact, to the extent it's a game, in my view, it should be game over 
for those involved in cheating scandals. They shouldn't be allowed anywhere near a financial statement. They should be barred from the profession for life. And you mentioned that sometimes CAQ, well, let me just stop there for a second and say, do you think the public should be concerned? Um, should the profession be concerned? And if so, what should be done? Well, thank you so much for emphasizing the P in CPA. That's something that we continually do. It does stand for public. It public interest, the gatekeeper role that auditors serve in our capital markets. John, I can't sugarcoat those instances that, that you mentioned. I, I can't. I can't do it. Do I think it's a pervasive problem? No, I don't. I do think that in the circumstances that you identified and, and others where the firms don't meet expectations, that bad behavior is rooted out. Sometimes it's self-reported. Sometimes it's rooted out in other ways. And those bad actors need to be held accountable. Uh, like I said earlier, there's going to be bad actors and those we have a regulatory regime in place to hold those folks accountable. Um, to me, that's evidence that the regular, regulatory system is, in fact, doing its job. And again, we, we certainly support that regulatory system um, in doing that. I, I do want to know, there are a lot of market-based incentives for auditors to get it right. And I think that is often overlooked or not not considered or appreciated by by several. One is just when something like this happens, the reputational hit that a firm will take. The reputation of these firms is their brand. It's their currency. And they take a hit. I mean, it allows people like you, John, to ask me these questions about the, the circumstances. Um, there's litigation risk when these things happen. Something else that you mentioned. And then there is the regulatory risk. So all of those things go into the equation for the firms to get it right. And they do strive to get it right. They may not be perfect, but they're constantly focused on getting it right. I don't think it's pers persuasive and or pervasive. And um, I think that there is a strong focus on serving the public interest. What bothers me is that I haven't seen or heard an appropriate level of outrage from the profession itself. As far as I know, many of the EY cheaters, and I refuse to sugarcoat that word, for instance, continue to work there. Why? I mean, I can't believe the leadership of EY, whom I know and respect and think in, in your words, try to get it right actually thinks that anyone who would cheat on an ethics exam can be trusted to sign an audit opinion, right? Why would I ever trust them signing an audit opinion? Um, has the CAQ said anything? I mean, it's it's a very difficult position. You can't expect Deloitte or PwC or KPMG to criticize you. Why? That would not be seemly. Um, you know, there, and let me just take my Professions part of the blame. We don't pay enough attention, and um, investors need to be more outspoken. Is this a role CAQ can play of just saying, "Look, this is wrong," and 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 from within the profession, have some moral outrage about it? Well, the 
I have said that back in um, when it when it all came to light. Exactly what I just said to you right now. I'm not going to go into the EY situation in great detail. I'm not, I don't have the details on exactly um, who all was involved and and um, the status of those those individuals. Um, I do know based on everything I heard, it was self-reported um, to the SEC and the PCOB. But again, we do push back, back to our original conversation. Part of my job and our job here in the CAQ is to point out where the profession could do better. And we're going to continue to do that. Move away from the uh, criticism of the profession and try to save it a little bit. Um, I know this sounds like inside baseball for our listeners, but trust me, it's sort of an existential risk for our financial systems. I know it. Julie, there simply aren't enough new accountants coming into the profession. We're not attracting enough new entries. Um, in addition, auditing in particular has traditionally been sort of an apprenticeship model. New auditors are hired. You work at an office, often at a client's office with seniors and partners. You learn the skills. You work your way up from doing simple tests to work complicate tests, and then you moved up or out over time. And so we don't have enough people coming in and remote work has made the apprenticeship model anachronistic. Um, how do we make accounting and running attractive to today's young people who are graduating and choosing professions? This is a great question, and I'm super excited to to share what the CAQ is doing in this space. I, I will say, I, I don't necessarily agree that auditing, auditing has lost its apprenticeship model due to the pandemic. Um, conversely, I, I would say that during the pandemic, I think the firms really stepped up to ensure that they continue to, to have that apprentice model, just as an example, setting up Zoom rooms. Um, where they used to all get together, as you said, with partners and senior managers and, and others, did this exact same thing virtually, which is how we're all operating now in, in the new hybrid environment. So certainly you've seen a lot of regulation, uh, resignations of, of auditors, but I don't think this industry has been impacted any more severely in that area than other industries in the great resignation. But to your point, talent is an issue. It's one of the biggest issues that this profession faces. This is even before pandemic. Pretty much since the day I walked here, walked on the door here at the CAQ, the CEOs have been talking about the issue of, of talent and also diversity in this profession, um, which there is a lack thereof in that it's largely a white male profession. The talent issue is multifaceted. It's perception about what an accountant is, an auditor is, it's boring, it's all math, why would I ever do that? The licensing requirements are rigorous. There is the 150 hours, an extra year of education that's required, which can be an issue. Starting salaries in the firms are not necessarily keeping up with other areas of uh, data analytics in some of, some of those areas. And then the other thing that I've heard is the firm work models, you know, just how they're structured, kind of up and out type of approach. And don't take my word for it. We know this because the CAQ did extensive research in the summer of 2021 about the perceptions and what are the barriers for students entering this industry. 
And this research is all available on the CAQ website. So we wanted to put it out there so everyone could take advantage of understanding what the issues are. This research formed the basis of what we call Accounting Plus. And I encourage all of your listeners to go to joinaccountingplus.com. We launched this campaign in January of 2022. This is a multi-year, multi-million dollar brand awareness campaign about what a career in accounting is, and more importantly, what it isn't. This campaign is directed towards Black and Hispanic Latino high school, entry-level college students. It's a campaign as well as a platform that provides a so-called one-stop shop for of resources for these students who are interested in the county to continue to move through the pipeline and ultimately enter the town. This campaign is, as I mentioned, based on ongoing qualitative and quantitative research. And importantly, it's not just the CHU and the eight firms that are represented on the governing board, the member firms of the CAQ, we are building a collective solution to a collective problem. So we have over 30 different organizations and growing that are participating in this campaign. So firms of all sizes, large and small. We also have state societies. We have other organizations like NABA, the National Association of Black Accountants, FAT, the National Account Foundation, IIA, Institute of Internal Audit, and, and growing, like I said. Um, we just launched in January 2022. We are seeing amazing momentum. By the end of last year, we've had over 14,500 students who have signed up to say we want to learn more about accounting. And we've also seen that in our messaging, we have on average a 21% positive lift of student perceptions of accounting. Hey, let's finish with some short questions and answers. What's exciting you right now? What are you passionate about? I'm excited that I bought a second place in Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm going to be um, establishing my primary location in Charleston in the next couple of months. Um, I love, I love the history there. I love the food scene. Uh, it has a nice art scene and I just, I'm very excited about that. How do you relax? Many different ways. I am a fitness buff. I have what's called the mirror for anyone who has one of the mirrors. Um, so I, I like to do that. Uh, the I mirror being a stand-up interactive thing sort of like peloton that is an interactive bike yeah it's like a hologram that comes up on the mirror and you can do i do pilates when i have the rough days i do kickboxing um to kind of take out some aggression but i love to do that i love to bake uh, i most i'm not a big cook but i like to bake and i think it's because of the, the chemistry aspects of it and i also play the piano so one thing that's moving to charleston is my baby grand piano what sort of music do you play and what sort of music do you listen to? Well, uh, I play, this is going to date me a little bit, but um, a lot of people probably don't know. I am a Fanilow. means I love Barry Manilow. So I, I know a lot of Barry Manilow's music, but I also, I, I play classical. I play, uh, when the, the musical Beautiful came out, I got the solid book, all the Carol King's music. So. 
I, I play all kinds of things. Uh, what I listen to, I don't play, and that's country music. I, I love country music. That's primarily what I listen to. What are you reading right now? I really only read fiction and novels because I do a lot of serious reading during the day. Uh, right now, I am reading Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I often go to the New York Times bestseller list, and that's where I get what I, what I want to read. I've read a lot recently by Taylor Jen Jenkins Reid. She did The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. And then Colleen Hoover is another person I've read a lot of. Um, Verity and a couple of other her books. Last question. If you can magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? Well, I mentioned that I like country music. And... I like it for the words and the, 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 the lyrics of the songs. And no, the songs are not all about my partner left me or my dog died or anything like that. They have really good meaning. And there's, there's one song that I really, really like. It's by Christian Bush, who was the partner in Sugar Land, if anybody's familiar with the group Sugar Land. Um, and it, the, the name of the song is called Trailer Hitch. But it's basically the message of the song is you've never seen a hearse with a trailer hitch, meaning we all have one life to live. We can all get wrapped up in the day-to-day, -day, strive for that next position, the next notoriety, the money and everything. But at the end of the day, you can't take it. And so my message would be, you have one life, you have to live it, you got to be happy. And if you're not happy, change it because you only have one life. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik with our special guest, Julie Bell Lindsay from the Center for Owner Quality in Washington, D.C. Um, Julie, thanks so much for being on. Thank you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukumnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukumnik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.